Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my wife, um, Janet, and she is a producer also. And today, um, on the phone lines, we have Dr. Sean Sean Baker of the Carnivore Diet. He is on the phone. Go ahead and start with your introduction. So introduce yourself. Tell us, um, uh, um, tell us your story. Yeah, okay. My name is Dr. Sean Baker. I'm a 53-year-old uh, physician. I was trained as an orthopedic surgeon. I've been an athlete my whole life. I've had some world records in a different number of different sports. Uh, I got into nutrition about a decade ago, as I saw as a mid-40-year-old guy starting to see my health decline despite, you know, still very high-level athletics and, and training and kind of kind of went through a little bit of a nutritional journey uh, starting with switching sports, going from Highland Games, world champion, which you see these guys that wear kilts and throw these big, uh, you know, big telephone pole things called cavers and stones and 56-pound weights we throw with one arm. I went from that where I was about, Oh, I'm six foot five, so I was close to 300 pounds when I did that, and I slimmed down to about 240. I uh, got into you know competitive rowing, where I'm a world champion in that. Uh, but I went on a dietary journey, and it started with a very low fat, low calorie, lean protein approach. I used that to lose about 50 pounds. Went from about 300 to two. Well, it was about six. I was about 290 at that time. 290 up from. 290 down to 240 uh, was absolutely miserable, awful. The nurses at work said they liked the fat, big Dr. Baker a lot better because I was grouchy and hungry and <laughs> really didn't enjoy life. You know, <laughs> trying to calorie restrict and eat leaves, so it didn't work too well. So I, well, I had a journey. I went on a paleo, paleo cell diet, which I did for about two years, and I got into a low-carb diet, started really reading about the research behind that. Eventually ended up on a ketogenic diet for a couple of years, and then I kind of gravitated to this carnivorous diet about three and a half years ago and sort of did a 30-day experiment with that and felt you know, really the best I'd felt in my entire adult life, to be honest, and really, you know, enjoyed feeling that way. I did it for 30 days and kind of went back to my regular diet at the end of 30 days and immediately felt worse. <laughs> and so it didn't take me too long to figure out I enjoyed feeling good and performing good and, you know, all those things that kind of switch back to that. And so I've been on this, uh, you know, almost almost exclusively, and I say exclu- almost exclusively, I, I include a few other things, but I'm primarily a guy that eats basically nothing but steaks, uh, you know, I'll have a few eggs here and there, a little bit of seafood, and occasionally dairy, and very rarely I'll have, you know, a little bit of plant material creep into my diet, but it's, it's, it's almost so infrequently, as I can almost say, pretty much never. So tell us a little bit about your history of your medical practice and what kind of practice you you um, you had. Yeah, so I mean, my, my you know, like I said, I, I trained as an orthopedic surgeon. So I, you know, I went uh, kind of interesting. I started out in medical school after college. I had a biology degree. You know, I graduated with honors from medical school. Well, let me really back up. I, I started in medical school in 1989, uh, University of Texas, and I left uh, after over a year in to go play professional rugby. I somehow got into playing rugby while I was in medical school in my spare time and ended up uh, being quite good at it. Uh, I got recruited to go play in New Zealand uh, among some of the best athletes in the world. Did that for a couple of seasons, came back. Uh, wasn't ready to hang up my rugby cleats at that time, so I ended up joining the military. 
where I launched nuclear bombs as my day job, and then I played rugby for the military. Uh, I did that until I was 30, where I got tired of getting my head kicked in <laughs> on the rugby field. And uh, I, I went back to medical school, and the military had paid for that, so I went back, uh, you know, graduated with honors, secured a, a residency in orthopedic surgery, which is one of the more difficult, one of the high, you know, one of the most difficult specialties to get into in the United States. And I went back in uh, as a military surgeon, uh, then got sent to Afghanistan, where I uh, took care of, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of war casualties, uh, you know. Did that for about six months, went back into practice, finished up my time in the military, joined civilian practice, and then, uh, you know, was the head of the surgical department for orthopedic surgeon. Surgery at the hospital was at. I had a bunch of, you know, surgeons working under me, and then really got into lifestyle stuff. And then I started, uh, you know, doing more and more uh, nutrition and lifestyle with my patients. Uh, ended up, you know, canceling a lot of surgeries, sort of. You know, backing away from the surgical approach, and that kind of runs counter to what the hospital wants. You know, the hospital wants you to do a lot of procedures and surgeries because that's really, quite frankly, what pays the bills. You know, keeps the lights on and, and pays the employees is doing lots of procedures. So I got out of that, you know, um, and started getting into more of a nutritional uh, lifestyle-based stuff. And since that time, you know, I've written books, been on the speaking circuit, lecturing all over the world. Uh, you know consulting people on nutrition so started a company uh, called meetrx.com where we are trying to you know not just put band-aids on sick people who are actually trying to make healthy people and I think that's where we need to go as a healthcare industry we need to you know get out of this disease management industry and uh, embrace what I like to call health creation you know because I, I think we can argue about how to pay for you know we already pay spend 3.5 trillion dollars a year on healthcare right. trying to pay for all that. It's really just, you know, it's kind of getting ridiculous. We're bloated. We're, you know, widely, wildly inefficient as a healthcare system. And I think the focus really has to be on let's not have so many sick people. This is what, you know, my goal has been going forward. Absolutely. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more in the later segments. Um, I like that term health creation. That's a, I've never heard that. And I I like that. um, You know, and you were correct. I mean, disease management, what, what I like it, or um, you know we're, we're sick. We have a sick care model, and just like you said, when you were doing procedures, doing orthopedic surgeries, it was you know counter counterproductive when for the system when you would tell people about diet and get them on a good diet and they wouldn't need surgeries. Now, on our radio show, we talk a lot about different disease states and how we can prevent them by our, our lifestyle, whether it be diabetes or whether it be hypertension or whether it be hypercholesterolemia, you know, cardiovascular disease. I think, to me, it comes kind of as a surprise a little bit um, when I find out that so many surgeries can be prevented, like orthopedic surgeries, because of diet. Do you have any numbers? I mean, is it 50%? I mean, do you have any kind of idea of how many surgeries could be prevented if, if people would change their diet and lifestyle? You know, I don't think there's a, I mean, there might be a study on this. I mean, I can tell you personally, one of the reasons I went into orthopedics because I had this glamorous view of, you know, people coming with broken bones and I'd put, you know, I'd put a metal rod down and I'd fix them and they'd be walking the next day. And certainly that happens. I mean, that happens, you know, not, not, you know, not uncommonly. But the vast majority of what I saw as just a day-to-day on the ground, everyday orthopedic surgeon was lifestyle-related diseases that manifest themselves as orthopedic issues. And when I say that, I think 
pretty much most arthritis, most tendon disease, a lot of tendon tears. You know, the things we see, these degenerative diseases that we see as people get into their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and so on, you know, where things start tearing and ripping and partially tearing, and they have these, uh, you know, uh, peripheral neuropathy diseases, these carpal tunnel syndromes, uh, knee arthritis, the hip arthritis, the shoulder arthritis, the rotator cuff tears, even some of the acute fractures related to fragility and osteoporosis, all of those probably could be avoided if we had the proper diet and lifestyle, you know, put in place or, or a significant percentage of them. I, you know, I would estimate something like 70 to 80% of the operations I did probably were preventable. So, I mean, it's enormous. Wow, that is a huge number. Yeah, I'm. I was kind of under the impression, like you said, when you were going into orthopedics, that yeah, broken bone, you put a rod in it or whatever. But it sounds like a lot of it is kind of maybe disease management or could be managed with with better lifestyle choices. Yeah, I mean, obviously the prevention aspect has to come in early. I mean, you, you know, you're not going to prevent people from disease starting at 60 when it comes to these things. You got to, you know, you got to hit them in their 20s and you know, 30s and sometimes even earlier. But, I mean, that's where, you know, if we, if we had those focus, we would, we would dramatically diminish the rates of, you know, requirements for, you know, surgeries and some of these, you know, some of these chronic uh, orthopedic problems. They're, they're just ubiquitous. I mean, they're so common. I mean, right. I think it's one of the most common reasons to see the doctor and at least in Western, you know, Western practice. So did you have any pushback from your colleagues or, you know, the system when you decided you were going to try to manage your patients with um, lifestyle issues? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I basically uh, resigned my job over it, quite honestly, and then had to, had to deal with the state board over the fact that I was, you know, I, I, you know, I was asking for, you know, having time to do lifestyle management, and, and the administration said, no, I mean, we, we don't have an appetite for that, your, your job. We pay you to operate on people, and they had no uh, no desire to entertain the fact that I wanted to spend time counseling patients on you know disease and lifestyle management. And so, uh, you know, I, I kind of just quietly did that on my own for several months until you know it, 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 it became, became discovered. And then I went through a long, lengthy path, you know, kind of a legal battle with the hospital over this, which I also openly resigned over, and uh, ended up having to you know. Uh, surrender my medical license, which I immediately got back after an independent review, you know, saw that I was doing nothing wrong, but I mean, that's, you know, that was the deal. I mean, it's, you know, when, when you compromise the bottom line, I mean, let's not, not be mistaken, medicine is, a, is, a, is now a business. We've seen the number of administrators that, that are in, in the healthcare industry go up by something like 800%, while as the number of physicians have kind of made, remained stable over the last 20 to 30 years, so it's clearly become just a business model with disease management industry and it's all you know it's all driven by you know dollars and you know the, the, the patient outcomes are kind of a secondary consideration quite honestly yeah it's, it's I very, yeah they're very jaded with that with that system yeah i totally agree with you i mean we talk about it on this show a lot about how we have a sick care model and honestly i mean some people might not want to admit it but i think you know, a lot of the system doesn't want to necessarily heal people because that's how they make money. So, and obviously it's not working in our country because cardiovascular disease and all kinds of chronic disease is at, a, at an all-time high. So we need to definitely do something different. So let's go ahead and go into our first commercial break. Dr. Baker, stay on the phone, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes to talk more about the carnivore diet. All right, welcome back to our show. If you missed the first segment, uh, Dr. Sean Baker is on the line with us. He's the author of The Carnivore Diet and has a great website, MeetRx, on training 
people how to eat um, eat well and um, you know prevent lifestyle-related diseases. Before I get into that, I want to read an excerpt from my book, um, talking a little bit about sick care and what Dr. Baker was talking about about health creation. I, I love that term. I'm going to start using that if you don't mind, Dr. Baker. And um, in my book, it's called Sickened, How the Government Ruined Healthcare and, and How to Fix It. And a lot of these issues, you can look back and the government made some pretty big, big changes to our healthcare system when they started getting involved in healthcare. And I think that's why a lot of this model is driven, is driven by them and a lot of the problems have been caused by them. So um, I'm going to just read an excerpt from my book. And, it, and really, it is... Looking chapter three in my book, looking looking back to move forward. So we didn't look back too far with Dr. Baker's in less than ten years ago, where he was having his issues happen. But um, it's important to understand that you know this has been a seventy-year process, and if and, and that all is summed up in my book. So those who do not know history are deemed to repeat it. Um, that is a quote from George Santanaya. And that is so true. That's not nothing. That's not a novel quote by any means. But if you don't know the history of our healthcare system and what has been going on for the last seventy or eighty years, then you might not understand it. So go to Amazon, download my book. It's on Kindle. Um, Sickened: How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. So, Dr. Baker, welcome back to our show. And I would like to yeah, go. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. So the carnivore diet, specifically. You know, obviously, it's a carnivore diet. Is that meat only? Tell us some details about what your book goes into about the carnivore diet. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there's a lot of meat involved in a carnivore diet. I think for some people, for some people, uh, you know, a fully 100% carnivorous only diet is the answer. I know that's very controversial. I mean, if we look at the standard American diet, which pretty much most people will agree is not served to many people well with regard to health, we see that it is about 70% plant-based, uh, you know, despite the, the, the complaints that we eat too much meat. When we actually look at the American diet, particularly when it comes to red meat, only about 5% of our diet actually is red meat. So it's a very tiny fragment of the diet. And what we're seeing with people that eat a, you know, a meat-based diet is quite the opposite of what we're told is happening. And so the way I define a carnivore diet is basically a diet that focuses on meat as the primary source of nutrition, and then what we do is we take plants and we either eliminate and then eliminate them completely, or we limit them to the degree that's necessary to obtain you know good health. And so at the end, I think that last saying is the most important part. You know, we limit things to obtain good health, and I think health is the outcome. It's not dogmatic. It's not we're trying to. Uh, save the tomatoes or, you know, eat as many animals as possible. It's just what gives us the most health. And I think that's the framework which I sort of operate from. And then the book kind of, you know, talks about rationale behind why this seems to work, whether it's an evolutionary plausibility model or historical accounts or what's going on with the human physiology, some of the disease, some of the many diseases that it seems to help with, success stories how to implement it, you know, the issues that people have, some debunking a lot of the, you know, the claims that are made about meat, uh, you know, things like heart disease, cancer, uh, you know, you know things, like, things like that where they talk about that would, would otherwise discourage people from, from attempting this because there's a lot of pushback for people even attempting it. And, uh, you know, I can go into, you know, what, what's wrong with that type of, 
you know argument if, if we want to. Yeah, no, please. Yeah, no, please go go into that. Let let's. What is the what is the pushback? Well, I mean, you know, there's there's obviously people that there's people there's kind of two categories. There's people that actually have done the diet and see what actually happens, and then there are people, the so-called pundits that will sort of tell us what they think might happen, and what they think might happen routinely does not occur. You know, these things about people are going to develop scurvy or they're going to have the microbiome is going to just, you know, fall to pieces and, you know, you're going to have all kinds of organ issues. None of that has, in fact, actually happened. And now not just handfuls of people, but now tens of thousands of people that have taken this up and tried it. And so I think one of the things we have to, one of the most important things we have to realize is that nutrition science just in general is not very good science. I mean, it's, it's, it's really poor, poor uh, you know, science as far as hard science goes. I mean, it would not even begin to pass muster in things like physics or engineering or any other more hard science out there. And so we've got this uh, sort of belief that this nutritional uh, studies that we have are actually going to tell us who's going to live along this, who's going to uh, have heart disease or not have heart disease or cancer or, you know, any number of conditions when we clearly do not have good, strong data that could actually point us to that. All we have at best is a lot of weak observational studies called epidemiology where there's no, uh, with a very rare exception, there's no, you know, sort of evidence that would point to causality. And a lot of people like to do that. You know, we constantly hear from week to week that one week coffee is good for us, the next week it's bad for us, one week eggs are good for us, the next week it's not. The same thing with red meat, the same thing with dairy, the same thing with, you know, on and on and on. It's just because it's such poor science. And anybody that's actually, you know, really looked into this stuff realizes that. And so because we're not actually doing real experiments, real verifiable randomized controlled trials of populations looking at actual endpoints, not, not a shift in blood work, which is also very limiting, you know, to, to sort of say your blood has this, this amount of this chemical in it today, therefore you're going to die of cancer in 30 years, is just complete garbage. I mean, it, 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 should, it should be... You know, beyond you know, beyond belief that people actually would buy into this stuff. But we we have this, and there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of vested interest in, in outcomes and, and and belief on what we were supposed to do. And so, people that adapt to carnivore diet routinely see that their health gets better. I mean, they, if they're obese, they get leaner usually. If their blood pressure is high, it normalizes. If you know they have arthritis, it often goes away. If they have digestive problems, it often goes away. If they have, um, you know, uh, autoimmune diseases, it, they tend to go away. And this is, uh, you know, I mean, it may surprise many people, but I, I've been doing this long enough now where it's very clear that a lot of the diseases of, of modern civilization are, in fact, related to diet. And when we clean up the diet, when we remove, you know, certainly the junk food, because the carnivore diet doesn't allow for junk food. A lot of the diets out there, paleo, keto, Vegan. I mean, there could still be a lot of junk food in those diets. When you eat a meat-based diet, it's really hard to make junk meat. Mm-hmm. You know, some people would argue that some of the sausages and processed meats, which contain things that are not meat in them, can be problematic. But in general, if you're eating, focusing just on meat, uh, you know, dairy, maybe not dairy, but eggs, seafood, things like that, uh, some organ meats from time to time, you generally have good health. And I think it's it's not... Uh, you know, the fact that humans have been eating this way uh, or eating a lot of meat for maybe 3 million years should at least give us some clue 
that meat is perhaps not bad for us. In fact, it's probably very arguably what drove our development into the human species. And, you know, think about it. There are many, many, many species on, on Earth. In fact, most species that have ever existed have eaten other animals. Carnivory has been the sort of the default setting for animals, whereas eating plants has been kind of a specialization. So the vast majority of animals that have ever been on Earth have adopted a carnivorous uh, style, I mean, from a species standpoint. There's a lot of herbivores, but from a, from a pure number of species that, that do carnivory, uh, they, they, they're by far the majority. And the fact that animals have been eating meat for millions and millions of years, and none of them develop chronic diseases. Humans have been eating meat for millions of years, and now we are told that for some reason, eating meat is bad just for human beings. I mean, again, this doesn't pass the common sense test. Yeah, that's that's true. And that, so, I love your analogies, and obviously, you've been asked these questions before. And I will tell you, one of the ways to really start engaging people is, you know, on social media, is talking about talking about eating meat because there will be people trolling your page that are vegans that um, are want, want to personalize it. I'm sure you have personal experience with that, too. So so when it comes to the, the carnivore diet, so in your book specifically, what do you talk about as far as, you said it's not completely carnivore, is that correct? You, you allow some vegetables or how, you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, like I said at the beginning, make meat the, 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 the essence of the diet. This is where the nutrition came from. If we were to flip our dietary or standard American diet around to 70% meat-based and 30% plant-based, we would see a tremendous improvement in health, particularly if that 30% did not come from Pepsi, Pepsi and Coca-Cola and French fries and Twinkies and Doritos and all that garbage that people eat. Um, so what I what I you know, well, like I said, you can start out using it as an elimination diet. You know, this is, again, this is for people that may be struggling with health issues. And, I mean, obviously going to the doctor and getting pill after pill after pill doesn't seem to be the answer. So if you're going to try a diet, you know, you go on a, you go on a relatively strict carnivore diet, you exclude all the plants, and then you add them back in, you know, one at a time to see what you can tolerate. Um, I don't, you know, if, if somebody goes and, you know, has a steak and they put some, parsley on it, you're not like kicked out of the carnivore club. I mean, there's no, this isn't an, or, this isn't an ethos, this isn't a ideology, we're not trying to save the tomatoes or, you know, do anything like that. It's just eating in a way that makes us, you know, find out what's the best self. And for some people, you know, if they're fortunate enough to be able to have some fruit, have some vegetables, have some dairy, have whatever, and not have any negative health consequences to it, then that, that's, that's completely fine with me. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, I think there can be. Um, my sort of sort of bias on this is I think that the advantages that you get from plants outside of maybe flavor enjoyment is probably from glucose, and this particularly refers to things like fruits and things like of that nature, where you know something that you would have a, a more difficult time actually getting from from, from meat itself because there's no real glucose. You manufacture your own glucose through gluconeogenesis from fats and you know amino acids primarily sometimes lactate, but we, you know, we can, you know, we can use glucose strategically as an athlete, perhaps, uh, for a performance advantage in, in the acute, uh, you know, in acute time frame, but again, if you, uh, you know, I think it's, I think you have to be objective about it. There are people that will say, 
Um, I've been on a diet where I eat meat and leafy green vegetables, and they will remove the leafy green vegetables, and their health will get better. That is a current, and I know that's shocking, and people seem to believe this, oh, my gosh, the more fruits and vegetables I eat, the healthier I'm going to be. That's not necessarily the case. I think we just have to step back and be objective about that. It's, it's a belief. It's not really a, a well-tested, uh, scientifically rigorously tested thing to say that if I take fruits and add them to a carnivore diet or I remove them from a diet, a mixed diet, am I going to get better or not? That's not been tested. What we have been testing is standard American junk food diet, add more fruits and vegetables, and people improve. That doesn't mean that they're going to they're gonna benefit or be negative in the context of a carnivore diet. That's something for you or I to test. Well, so so expand a little bit on, uh, you mentioned the flavor of vegetables and glucose. What about the big question of fiber, fiber and colon cancer? Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, so fiber is completely unnecessary. You do not have fiber. It's not an essential nutrient. I've not had fiber in years, three, three plus years. I'm not dead. I'm thriving. I'm breaking world records without fiber. My digestive health is as good as it's ever been. I have a regular bowel movement pretty much every day. There is no prize at the end of the day or the end of the year or the end of your life for having the largest bowel movement or the most bowel movement. It just doesn't exist. There's no evidence whatsoever that holds it up. There are studies out there that show that people that eat more fiber, that have more bowel movements, in fact, have more diverticular disease. For instance, there was a study that uh, Ann Peary did, I think, in 2012, looking at that. She took the colonoscopies on people. The more fiber they ate, the more disease they had in their colon. Uh, most of, again, this is epidemiology. Most of the fiber-positive studies are we take a bunch of people, we ask them how much fiber they ate, the ones who ate the more fiber had less disease. Again, that can be highly confounded with things like healthy user bias. Again, doctor says, hey, eat more fiber, uh, you know, wear your seatbelt, don't smoke, don't drink, exercise, keep a healthy body weight. People that follow instructions generally are in the healthier category. People that say, screw that, I'm going to going to drink, I'm going to smoke, I'm not going to wear my seatbelt, I'm not going to eat any fiber. You know, you see where we have this dichotomy of people there. And so this is all epidemiologic based. This is junk science. Um, You know, when you, uh, you know, some of the thoughts now are fiber attracts a healthy microbiome. These these bacteria will create short-chain fatty acids. The short-chain fatty acids, particularly butyrate, will nourish the colonocytes. These are the cells that line the colon. Well, there are many ways to get those short-chain fatty acids. If you are on a low-carbohydrate diet, your body will create something called beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is very similar to butyrate. In fact, it rapidly can change to butyrate, and that can nourish those very same cells. Also, you can get butyrate from eating butter. You can get short-chain fatty acids from amino acids, things like propionate, acetate, methylbutyrate, so on and so forth. So, you know, this is, again, this is some belief that we have to have this fiber in our diet. This goes back to uh, Dennis Burkett, who was a physician in the 1940s who looked, looked in Africa and saw that, look at these African populations. They eat a lot of fiber, and they don't have diabetes, and they're not obese. And he compared it to the U.K. people who were starting to develop obesity back then. But he failed to examine the fact that they weren't eating any sugar either. You know, and John Yudkin made that observation, but the low-fat, sort of dogma help one. You know, I think the Sugar Institute sort of helped to, to steer that with, with donations to guys like Fred Stair at Harvard University to kind of prop up sugar and demonize fat. So uh, fiber is not essential. It is conditionally beneficial, particularly if you're eating a standard American diet, but it is, it is 100% not essential. 
you know, when we look at risk of colorectal cancer, and this is another thing we talk about, there are many, many risk factors for colorectal cancer. Risk factors in actual disease are a huge, a huge difference. You know, we can talk about cardiovascular disease as well, but when we talk about risk factors for colorectal cancer, the bigger risk factors are obesity, central adiposity and visceral fat, uh, chronic inflammation, uh, hyperinsulinemia, and, and the, really the biggest risk factors factor is things like inflammatory bowel disease. These would be things like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. These things have, particularly the inflammatory bowel disease, when we look at relative risk, and relative risk is a little bit uh, confusing, but relative risk for inflammatory bowel disease, we're looking at 3,000% increase in rates of colorectal cancer. When we look at hyperinsulinemia or visceral body fat, we're looking at 600% increase in colorectal cancer, obesity, maybe a 200% increased risk. Uh, when we look at red meat, as per the World Health Organization 2015 decree, we're looking at 17%. 17% relative risk means an absolute risk increase of around 1%. That is to say, if the odds of you getting colorectal cancer were 4%, it is now 5%. So a very tiny increase in risk with red meat, and there's problems the way they derive that anyway. But even if we were to take those numbers at face value, when we, when we compare, you know, 17% relative risk and we compare it to 300, 400, 500, 600, or even 3,000% increased risk, you can see which one makes the most difference. And so when people go on a carnivore diet, all those really big risk factors like inflammatory bowel disease, like uh, visceral fat, obesity, uh, hyperinsulinemia, inflammation, go down dramatically. And so, again, you have to, whenever, whenever you're talking about risk, you have to know all the risk factors and weigh everything accordingly. And so what we see is people go on a carnivore diet, lose weight, they lose visceral fat, their insulin goes lower, their uh, inflammation goes lower. If they have Crohn's or also colitis, that usually goes away. So we've reduced our risk for colorectal cancer immensely by going on a carnivore diet. Great. So that's a good place to end up this second segment. We appreciate, appreciate you being on. You are just a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for being on our show. We will be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham on AM 1470 KBSN. Hello and welcome back, listeners and viewers, to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. If you missed our first two segments on today's show, we have Dr. Sean Baker with us um, with the Carnivore Diet. He's the author of the Carnivore Diet book, also MeetRx.com, which we will get into a little bit later. Dr. Baker, are you still with us? I'm here. All right. So... Let's get into a few details, first of all, about meat versus vegetables. Tell us, there are some nutrients we can get from meat, but we can't get from vegetables. Can you expand a little bit on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are a number of things you can get more easily than meat. I mean, there's some, things, some ways you can kind of stack and uh, balance some vegetables to get some of that. But things like uh, carnosine, creatine, uh, taurine, uh, carnitine, for the most part, is almost exclusive to meat. You know, meat has, uh, just looking at protein, there was a nice study that just came out looking at uh, amino acids, essential amino acids, and one in particular called leucine, which uh, is essential for muscle protein synthesis, and muscle is very important to maintain and build, particularly as we age. It protects us from disease. It protects us from aging, and it actually actually helps us to live longer. But uh, that study showed that even if they take plants, you know, in this case, you use plant protein powders, and they, they equated and they made all of the essential amino acids exactly equal. 
the same amount of leucine going in, and they fed that to people, what they actually absorbed, what they actually got into the bloodstream was about 30 to 40% lower. So what we see is uh, a lot of plants have, quote-unquote, anti-nutrients, and and I know that sounds like a crazy word, but what's actually happening is there there are things in plants, things like phytic acid, things like oxalates, and even fiber itself will bind up a lot of these nutrients, and, and we can't access them, so it makes it difficult for us to absorb it. So it's not what we eat. So it's in the in the food is what we're actually able to access and absorb. And so meat is much more bioavailable. So even the things that they have in common, the amino acids that you could get if you were to make a perfectly balanced plant-based diet, you're still significantly putting yourself at a disadvantage. And again, so the things like creatine, carnitine, carnosine, so on and so forth, some of those things we actually do make endogenously, but there are a number of studies that show, for instance, People with major depressive disorder have very low levels of carnitine, uh, and we see people that are in a, you know, vegetarians, vegans, have particularly lower levels of carnitine than people that are omnivores. Uh, you know, and again, we don't have a lot of data on people that eat pure carnivorous diets, but we see that major depressive disorder is associated with low levels of carnitine, B12 being another one. Obviously, these yeah. vegans are well aware of that, and they supplement. And one of, the, one of the sort of things that they'll say is, yeah, there are a lot of people that are omnivores, also are low in B12. My answer to that is because, again, when we look at how much red meat do Americans actually eat, it's only about 5% of our diet. So we actually don't eat enough meat, and that's one of the reasons even omnivores are deficient in B12, and and vegetarians and vegans tend to be even more so depleted. And that iron is another one that's commonly uh, low. We see a lot of people with iron deficiency anemia, and that's higher rates are seen often in vegans and vegetarians. And so... There are, like I said, there are a number of compounds. Vitamin D3 is more difficult. Uh, vitamin K2, all, these are all tend to be plant, I'm sorry, meat or animal-based derived. Uh, vitamins that are very difficult. Vitamin A, which people are familiar with vitamin A in the form of beta carotene. Uh, there is uh, another, another version called retinol, which is the animal-derived version of vitamin A. That's the actual vitamin A that we actually use and utilize. It's a currency of, of animals or humans. And so we have to be able to convert that. Uh, many people genetically have a hard time converting uh, retinol into vitamin A. So, uh, again, there are a number of things that make uh, make it harder to make things work on a, on a plant-based diet. It's not that it's impossible, but it, it's, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't have the knowledge or the time or the planning to, to meticulously balance that, whereas I can tell people just go eat a steak or go eat some steak and eggs. And, and pretty much their nutritional needs are largely covered. So speak, speak a little bit about why that is. So something about animals can, you know, herbivores can take plants and they can condense or assimilate nutrients and then we eat them. Can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the circle of life. That's how things have been for, for a long time. I mean, you know, the, the, the animals take, uh, you know, a, a cow will graze. Their stomach capacity is that of about a 55-gallon drum. They have this huge, giant vat of a fermentation vat filled with, uh, uh, you know, micro uh, bacteria that can can uh, sort of ferment uh, the, the grass and the fiber they eat, turning it into uh, short-chain fatty acids for the cows. So they concentrate all those nutrients in one nice beautiful package and then we eat that and we have this concentrated dose of nutrition that is far more bioavailable it's far more uh appropriate for what we are you think about it you know and i've operated on thousands and thousands of people when you 
Yeah, when you cut people open, we are basically red meat animals. I mean, that's that's the, that's the, the, the deal there. And so, again, the default setting for all animals has been a carnivorous approach. It's the easiest way to assimilate nutrition. And so, these herbivores have specialized uh, uh, digestive adaptations in the in the, in the things like cows and uh, other ruminants, cows, sheep, uh, deer, elk, things like that. They have this giant rumen, this four-chambered uh, digestive compartment where they can kind of deal with all this vegetation, and they eat. You know, they they continuously graze all day long, eating. You know, you know, t- you know, tens of pounds of grass per day. Uh, and then there's other animals that are rear gut fermenters, and these are things like horses and zebras and elephants and some primates like chimpanzees and gorillas. And again, they have they also have a strategy where they have this huge hind gut, this giant colon, this giant cecum. Uh, a gorilla, for instance, who would weigh, you know, might weigh 200 or 300 pounds, depending on the sex of the, of the animal, uh, not that much bigger than a human. I mean, a big human might weigh 300 pounds. But the gorilla is eating 40 to 60 pounds of food a, a day. Wow. Uh, you know, this is, a, and, and they have this, again, huge hindgut fermentation vat. And not only that, because they can't get B12 from their food, they have to actually eat their own feces, or they often do that to get the B12 that they're missing. And so humans no longer have that. Humans, again, if we look at an evolutionary theory, uh, you know, somewhere seven, eight million years ago started to, you know, this line started to diverge, and we lost most of that capacity. In fact, if we look at the actual hardware, the anatomy, the gut anatomy of different primates, you know, or different animals, we see that, uh, you know, like a chimpanzee or gorilla might have 50 to 60% of its gut anatomy dedicated to fermentation. A human, plant fermentation, a human only has about 17%. That is basically what a dog or a cat has. I think a dog and a cat have, I think, 18 and 16% respectively. So we basically, from an anatomy standpoint, have a very similar digestive tract to a cat or a dog from a fermentation capacity, which means probably we don't do well with lots and lots of fiber like that, like a gorilla bite. Uh, and we see that all the time as people develop irritable bowel syndrome or told eat more fiber, eat more fiber. And we have these people that just are constantly blurry, they constantly have gas, they have pain. Uh, and when you eliminate that, when you eliminate all the fiber from the diet, these people clearly just get better. And it, 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 it's repeatable. It's done over and over and over again. It, the fiber... You know, again, this is something that's indigestible by humans, by all mammals, by all vertebrates. We put that in our digestive system, and uh, we tend to, you know, not do well with it. So what about bowel movements, then? I mean, when we're talking about healthy bowel movements and frequency and all that, does when you go over, switch to carnivore only, does that change? Well, yeah, I mean, generally people have smaller bowel movements because we just don't have as much junk. I mean, we're, we're, we're not wasting, we're, we're absorbing. Our meat is, you know, in contrast to what people might, might tell you how meat rots in your intestines, it doesn't. I mean, it's extremely, extremely well digested in the small intestine. There's many, many people that have, uh, you know, ileostomies where, you know, where, where they have a bag, where they go to the bathroom in a bag, and they will tell you 100%, there's actually studies on this, that if you feed people meat, that is completely digested. Almost nothing comes out. In contrast, if you feed them vegetables and other fibrous type things, almost all of it passes through the small intestine completely undigested, you know. And this is kind of a little maybe gross, but think about, you know, you eat a bunch of corn and you see corn in your in your toilet, 
But when's the last time you saw a piece of steak in your toilet? I mean, right, it, it just right. doesn't happen. It never happens, right? So, I mean, but when, I, when we actually studied 100 people going on a carnivore diet for 90 days, and we actually had them track their bowel frequency every single day, they would mark if they had a bowel movement or two or whatever, and after 100 days, the average frequency for bowel movements was slightly over one bowel movement per day. It was like 1.2. So every five days, they would have six bowel movements. So, you know, we still have bowel movements. Now, in the beginning, early on during the transition period, you know, there will be a period of time where people have less frequent bowel movements. Some people even develop, uh, you know, loose stools or diarrhea. But over time, um, you know, basically the, the bowel works well. And, and most people will comment this is the most regular least pain, most comfortable digestion. In fact, you don't even notice digestion. It's like it goes away completely. You sound like, you know, you can eat a big steak and 30 minutes later you can get up and run around. Whereas before, you know, you fill up on whatever and you're bloated, you're uncomfortable, you need to lay down, you need to take a nap. Um, that goes away. You just feel good. So that, I guess it begs the question, and I'm sure you've thought about this, but if we're not absorbing those nutrients and we're just eliminating them, what's the benefit of them? Is, is that that's a good question, right? Right. I mean, so a lot of people will go on a heavy fiber plant-based diet, and you know they'll lose weight. Well, what's happening in many cases is a lot of that nutrition is just going, getting flushed down the toilet. I mean, you're absorbing a, a percentage, but a large percentage of it just goes away. So you are basically eating. I mean, it, it could be as if you were eating rocks or, or cardboard. I mean, you would you know you would eat that, it would fill you up, it passed your digestive tract. I don't know about the rocks, but, I mean, you, know, you could literally potentially eat cardboard, I guess, and get a similar effect. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, you know, there is some nutrition you absorb, but it is much more difficult to absorb. In fact, recently, um, what was it, the, the, uh, I think the USDA, through the, through the RDA, recommends that if you're eating phytic acid, which are, you know, compounds found in, beans, legumes, grains, and, and whatnot, if you're eating 1,000 milligrams of phytic acid, you need to double your zinc intake to make up for it because you're just wasting it down the toilet. If you eat 2,000 milligrams of phytic acid, uh, you know, then, you're, then you need to triple your zinc intake. So we're clearly seeing the rec- recognition that eating these plant compounds means we're just not absorbing nutrition. And so we're just... So, you know, it's, it's kind of sad to say in America, 40% of the food we, we produce ends up in a landfill, most of it fruits and vegetables and baked goods. And you think about it, how many times have you gone to the store and bought a bunch of organic fruits and vegetables, and only three days later to throw half of it out? I mean, this is happening over and over again. And, the, the, and then the, 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 the 50% that you don't throw out, you eat, and then a significant percentage of that nutrition just goes in the toilet. So it's kind of a really inefficient way to get calories and nutrition. And interestingly enough, if we look at the food loss available, the food availability and loss data, the average American goes through about 2,000 pounds of food per year. You know, some of it we eat, some of it we throw out. Uh, but if we look at that, if we compare that to what a person on a carnivore diet might eat in an average year, it's something around six to 800 pounds. And so not only are you eating, you know, you're just, you're just not eating as much food in general, and you're not throwing out as much food. So, I mean, it's actually a very efficient way to eat, and probably if we look at the environmental impact, probably even less if we, even, if we, if we care to look at those numbers. Most people don't want to discuss 
some of that aspect. Right, right. No, that's a good, I'm glad you uh, mentioned that. That's really good. So as we wrap this show up, we got a couple minutes here. So tell us about MeatRx, and if somebody wants to start the carnivore diet, is a MeatRx, a MeatRx.com a, a good place to go? Yeah, absolutely. MeatRx.com, we've got a nice FAQ. You can go there and check out the FAQ. We have the largest collection of success stories on the planet with the carnivore diet. We have hundreds and hundreds of different categories of people that have responded to, you know, various things, whether it's arthritis, anxiety, depression, you know, autoimmune issues, uh, you know, weight loss, thyroid issues, you know, it go, you know, goes on and on and on. Uh, we've got a library, research library of all kinds of articles and scientific articles that talk about that. We have articles that go into agriculture and the environmental impacts. Uh, we have hundreds of recipes. We have uh, the most affordable coaching really on the planet for this stuff. Our coaches are, are $18 a session, you know, which is just ridiculously cheap for a coach. It's experienced, it's trained. We all have them certified. They can tell you how to do the diet, deal with any questions, be very supportive. We have daily meetings. We have support groups. Uh, we're growing basically by the week on more features. Uh, and, you know, so we've, we've gone. We launched in November, November 19th when my book came out, and we've gone. We've got several thousand members already, and growing every day. So it's a great place to learn about the diet, great place to get support, great place to talk about people. Talk to people that are learning, going through, people that have been doing it for, for a decade or more that are there to help you guys. Uh, so, yeah, MeRx.com is just a, uh, I think, a really good place to, you know, get into this diet. Awesome. Dr. Baker, you have been awesome on the show. You're so, so knowledgeable about this subject. I, I love it. I love the I love the stuff you talk about, the science and, and the analogies. So uh, check his book out, Dr. Sean Baker with The Carnivore Diet, and check out MeatRx.com if you want to know more about The Carnivore Diet. You are listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Follow us on YouTube, the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube and Sean Needham's personal Facebook page. Also on all your favorite podcast sites, iTunes, um, SoundCloud, and so on. So you're listening to another edition. This finishes up another edition. Follow us again Monday, uh, 1 o'clock next Monday. Uh, we'll have Greg Bickle from Yakima. And you're listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thanks again, Dr. Baker. Okay, thank you very much. Uh.